Toward the end of 1721, a Quaker man named Isaac Norris discovered an alarming prediction in the American Almanac for the Year of Christian Account, 1722. A local magistrate, successful merchant, and gentleman farmer, Norris had stepped into the print shop at the sign of the Bible on 2nd Street in Philadelphia looking for weather predictions, not astrological speculations. More than a century after the first permanent English settlements were established in Jamestown, and still half a century before a then-unimaginable break from the British Empire, colonists of Norris's era believed they were living in a new age of prosperity and rationality. Few could have expected that 1722 would usher in a crisis so severe that it would transfix the eastern seaboard from native communities to colonial capitals and lead to debates that still echo today, but the pages of the 1722 American Almanac did provide certain clues about imminent events. Scanning the Almanac pages in the weak December light, perhaps Norris felt no shiver of anticipation over its prediction of a total eclipse of the moon, sure to be visible if the air be clear on the 17th day of June. Illustrated with a woodcut of a dark-faced moon, the book warned that this celestial event portends much evil. Specifically, the author, Titan Leeds, claimed the year would bring consumptions, fevers, fears, exiles. The list of coming catastrophes grew longer and ever more dire as Leeds predicted the death of the elder people. Most ominous of all, Leeds called for the murder of some, adding, and because the eclipse falls in the twelfth house near the dragon's tail, I'll predict imprisonment too. Isaac Norris, sensible Quaker, likely took little alarm at first. What he could not know as he requested his own personal printing of the almanac, asking the shopkeeper and publisher Andrew Bradford to interleave his copy with blank pages on which he could jot personal notes and bind the whole thing with a sturdy paperboard cover, was that every one of Leeds' predictions would soon come to pass. Before another twelve months went by, the colony would be convulsed by a murder case involving two colonial fur traders and an Indian hunter. After a drunken night of bargaining beside a winter campfire in the woods near the Susquehanna River, two brothers named John and Edmund Cartledge would assault a Seneca man and leave him for dead. Rival investigations by Indian leaders, including a native spokesman known as Captain Civility and colonial officials, including Isaac Norris, resulted in fierce debates about the nature of true justice. Many feared the attack might become just the first act of a full-scale war. The crisis created by the confrontation grew so grave that news of it reached the king's closest counselors on the British Board of Trade. It fueled urgent concern not only among the members of the five nations of the Haudenosaunee, including the Seneca Nation, but also among the various native peoples of the Susquehanna River Valley, from Iroquois groups such as the Susquehannock to Algonquin ones such as the Lenape and the Shawnee. 
Resolving the case required a region-wide treaty conference, including the governors of three colonies and leaders of over a dozen native nations. The Great Treaty of 1722, signed in Albany, New York, in September of that year, brought the case to a close, but it could not put to rest the questions about savagery, civility, and justice it raised. Words of Nicole Eustace from her recent study, Covered with Night, issued by W.W. W. Norton. Nicole Eustace will present a lecture and discussion in Scranton this Wednesday, May 11th, as part of a project funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities, titled Scranton's Story, Our Nation's Story. The third theme of the two-year initiative centers on the indigenous history of northeastern Pennsylvania. Adam Pratt is Associate Professor of History at the University of Scranton, and Dr. Pratt stopped in at the WVI studios to talk with us about Theme 3 and about how he was drawn with passion to the study of Native American history. So when I was an undergrad at Clemson University, I took a random class in the age of Andrew Jackson, and we get to the topic of Indian removal, and a very vigorous debate ensued. And a student was crying, and I did not make her cry. (laughs) But it really spoke to me about how vital and emotional this, this part of our history is, that Americans still care so much about the plight of, of indigenous Americans. And, and I think it's just something that we need to know more about to, to better appreciate who we are as a people and to have a more accurate view of the United States. And that is significant because you were young and the crier was young <laughs> and you were finding your way, but it struck you on an emotional, visceral level, right? Yeah, precisely. It was this very sort of aha moment that here's this thing that it isn't just something I was reading in a book. It was this thing that people connect to and care about on a very visceral level. Uh, People who care about what sort of nation they live in, who care about justice and freedom and rights and all of those things. It all goes into the story of Native history in the United States. And we tend to think about the South and race particularly, but the story that you tell and you've explored, would you say it's as defining as race in a certain sense? I I would say certainly in the 19th century, it was just as visceral and present as sort of a white-black dichotomy that white Southerners in particular were so keen on thinking about natives and trying to exclude them from the body politic in the same way that they were with enslaved African Americans and free people of color. So yeah, definitely in the 19th century, it it was very real and present. And, And I think we have to, if we talk about, you know, the Northeast, it was very real and present in the 17th and 18th centuries here. And that's where we're headed. But remind people, what was the Trail of Tears? So the Trail of Tears was the result of the Indian Removal Act that Andrew Jackson and his supporters passed in 1830. And the Trail of Tears itself is, we were referring to the Cherokee Nation who were expelled forcibly from the state of Georgia and North Carolina in starting in 1838. 
and they were expelled by a combination of the United States Army and then various state militia groups to go and live in what is now the state of Oklahoma. And then their land was, was given over to, to white settlers. It's, it's a forcible sort of uh, ethnic cleansing, if you will. The federal government came in and said, you can no longer live here. This land is, is, for, is for whites. And it was, you know, the Trail of Tears. There was real suffering. We are sitting here in northeastern Pennsylvania, in the northeast. You're teaching here. And the University of Scranton has a grant from the Humanities Endowment to explore our story in the context of the nation's story. And so what don't we know? Yeah. So as somebody who's not from here, when I came here, seeing words like Lackawanna and Susquehanna and Wyoming, you know, these these are not English words, obviously. So, you know, I, I study Native Americans broadly in the South, but I wanted to know more about what was happening here in Pennsylvania, who was living here. And so that's led me to be a part of this grant from the, from the NEH and sort of putting it out there that we need to know more about the indigenous people of, of Northeast Pennsylvania. So I've been fortunate that I've worked with some really great students who've been doing a lot of really impressive research in this area, who have expanded my knowledge of, of what's been happening. Um, and then on top of that, the university is, is sort of making a push. We now have a native land acknowledgement statement that recognizes the original indigenous inhabitants of Northeast Pennsylvania. And I'm proud to have been a part of that. So yeah, so roughly speaking, there were multiple groups, Northeast Pennsylvania in particular, especially the Wyoming Valley. It was sort of a a highway, a corridor between the Northeast and sort of the, the Southeast. So there were north of us, there was the Iroquois Confederacy or the Haudenosaunee. But here in Pennsylvania, we had the Lenape, who lived east of us, the Muncie, who were in sort of the Hudson River Valley, and sort of in central and eastern Pennsylvania were the Susquehannocks. And then the the Shawnee migrated into the area in the early 18th century. So there's all of these people moving in and out. There are all of these pressures from settlers in the east who are forcing natives into this area, especially by the 1750s. And that's why the pressures sort of exploded in the American Revolution with the Battle of Wyoming, 44th and all of that. So there's all of this dislocation and displacement and, and contest for who has the right to live here. When we hear the different names, were there contests just without us between and among them? Certainly, yeah. So there, there were certainly contests. Those contests, though, were exacerbated by colonization because different tribes wanted access to European trade goods. So they would squabble with one another to get Dutch trade goods or French trade goods or English trade goods, whatever, whatever the case may have been. But yeah, certainly people, especially the Haudenosaunee, claimed this area. Whether they were living here permanently were not. 100% certain, but they certainly claimed it, called it their own. Uh, they wanted to make the people who lived here sort of subservient to them. And the Susquehannocks paid a pretty heavy price for that. The, the Muncie and the Lenape were a little bit more fortunate, I guess, that they could fend off some of, some of those attacks. But 
Uh, yeah, certainly. So one of the, the points of this research is not to say that, oh, the, the Europeans showed up and everything blows up. There, there were certainly pressures and contests prior to colonization, but those pressures and colonization got a lot worse after colonization. You were suggesting, I think, that the pressures from the East and the colonists moving through did, in fact, not like the formal Jacksonian removal, but pushed the Native peoples to the West or back up North? Yeah, precisely. You're right. It's not a formal sort of declaration like we're going to expel you, but it was just tribes coming together collectively saying we can't have an existence here anymore. We need to figure out where we're going to go. Uh, And so by the 1750s, they're coming here to the Wyoming Valley. But also there are settlers from Connecticut coming from the Wyoming Valley. So wherever they turned, there are these pressures. And so they have to get really adept at negotiating with colonists, with trying to live in harmony with colonists, but the closer we get to the revolution, that became increasingly difficult. What records are there from our area? How do we know what you're telling us in terms of the historical record? Yeah, so this is a a huge sort of conundrum when when we talk about the historical record, because historians rely upon written documents to to make our arguments and to have factual knowledge. So most of the things that we know about Native peoples in the 17th and 18th centuries comes from Europeans, the the very people who are trying to expel them or convert them, whatever the case may have been. So how reliable those records are is, you know, we have to take a healthy amount of skepticism when we're looking at those. That doesn't mean that there aren't Natives who learned English or Latin or French or whatever the case may have been. There are sources available. For the Cherokee, there's the Cherokee syllabary, so their their written language. They also printed a newspaper, uh, which is a tremendous source. The University of Western North Carolina has completely digitized, so you can go and look at it. But in terms of this, so one of the the great sources are, are treaties. So treaty negotiations happen frequently, and there's a ceremonial aspect to them. And one of those aspects was that colonial officials recorded almost everything, almost word for word, that Native people said. And so our first talk by Nicole Eustace, that's where her story starts, is this treaty in Albany in 1722. And her book, Covered with Night, is about this treaty and competing aspects of justice that Native Americans talked about in this Treaty of Albany in 1722, and how European colonists just sort of didn't know what to make of this. So her book, Covered with Night, it was a finalist for the National Book Award last year. It's, I can't say enough good about it. So we are super excited to have her. Wednesday, May 11th, she'll be speaking at the PNC Auditorium in the Loyola Science Center at the University of Scranton. She's a professor of history at NYU. Her other books are about the history of emotion, which is sort of a new field that that historians are talking about. So this is about a murder, so emotion, but it's also about these different notions of justice. You know, the, the story that she uncovers, this murder, it happens here in eastern Pennsylvania. So it's 
It's perfect. Yeah, it, it's a great story. So we're, we're really fortunate to have her visit us. And then where do we head with the second program? Uh, the second speaker is the following week on Wednesday, May 18th at 5 p.m. in the Albright Memorial Library, so in downtown Scranton. And that's Dr. Samantha Seeley, who teaches at the University of Richmond. And she'll be talking about her book. It's called Race Removal and the Right to Remain. So it's essentially about late colonial and then early U.S. efforts to sort of social engineer what the United States was going to look like and who was going to have the right to live on this land claimed by the United States. It's a little bit more sort of academic, but it's a really tremendous and sort of thought-provoking book. And again, all these issues have never gone away. No, no, no. <laughs> they are still with us, yeah. And, you know, it's it's interesting. We We live in a country where there are native names everywhere we go, the, the rivers, the towns, the streets, but the people have been uh, expelled. And I think that's a really interesting conundrum, you know, that we need to contend with as Americans. So that's what these two talks, I think, are going to help us, help us think about, how we can contextualize the nation's past. Uh, again, not as a way to like make us feel guilty about what happened in the past, but to help us understand it. Remind people, as we close, about the overall project of Scranton's story, the nation's story. The whole wonderful thing is that the faculty at the university is so well prepared to address these issues, and you can complement your expertise by bringing in people to have conversations, and it's not an academic enterprise at all, right? Yeah, and so this is what we envision from the get-go is, yeah, we have faculty with some specialized knowledge who can help out, but really this is a community partnership. It, it's not just us sort of dictating what we're going to talk about. So the number of meetings with various community partners that the grant writers have done is, you know, just astronomical. And it's it's been a ton of work by a lot of people, not just at the university again, but the community partners. And it, it does just go to show how wonderful folks in Scranton and, and Northeast Pennsylvania are. They care so much about this place. They... They want to tell its story. They want other people to know why it's such a fantastic place. And as somebody who's like a transplant here, I mean, I'm I'm certainly a, a Scranton evangelist. So I I call it home. So I've, I've I've really grown to like it and think that it has something unique to tell us about the country we live in. Adam Pratt. Associate Professor of History at the University of Scranton, speaking with us about a project funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities titled Scranton's Story, Our Nation's Story. They are right now in the third theme of a two-year initiative, and that centers on the indigenous history of northeastern Pennsylvania. In that connection, there will be two lecture discussions in the coming two weeks. Murder and Mercy, a colonial encounter in the Susquehanna Valley, this Wednesday, May 11th at 5, and it will feature Nicole Eustace, professor of history at NYU, and her latest book, Covered with Night, is something we heard about in this discussion and sampled a bit of at the start. 
The program will take place at the PNC Auditorium in the Loyola Science Center at the University of Scranton. For more information, scranton.edu slash Scranton Story. Scranton Story. And the following Wednesday at 5, it's Removal and the Right to Remain in the United States, a lecture and discussion at 5 o'clock Wednesday, May 18th at the Albright Memorial Library in Scranton, featuring Samantha Seeley. Dr. Seeley is an assistant professor of history at the University of Richmond. Her book, Race, Removal, and the Right to Remain, highlights early efforts at U.S. nation building and the use of migration to construct a white republic. That's Removal and the Right to Remain in the United States, Wednesday, May 18th at 5, at the Albright Memorial Library in Scranton. The same address on the web, scranton.edu slash scranton story.